This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro, and I'm so excited to announce that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is just around the corner on October 26th at Georgetown University. For our Health Gig listeners, we have a special offer. If you sign up by September 20th, you'll get $50 off your ticket. Just go to AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com and use the code HEALTHGIG. Get ready to create a happier and healthier life story. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. We're so happy that Dr. Howard Weiner is here with us today. He's the director and co-founder of the Partners Multiple Sclerosis Center at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He also happens to be a film writer and a film director, which we'll talk about later. Dr. Weiner, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. We know that MS affects 2.3 million people around the world. So let's talk about the state of affairs for MS, and where we are today. There are many neurologic diseases, and of all the neurologic diseases, MS is one that we've had the most success with in finding treatments. We don't have all the treatments we'd like. MS is classified as an autoimmune disease, which means the immune system attacks itself. The immune system generally acts to fight off infection, etc., And when I see with my patients, they say, well, how do you explain the immune system attacking itself? And this is what I tell them. If you imagine a kidney transplant, if you get a kidney transplant, you can imagine the immune system trying to reject the kidney and attack the kidney. Everybody can understand that. It's a foreign kidney in your body. The immune system in MS thinks your own brain is like a foreign kidney and it attacks it. And that's why it's called autoimmune. The immune system is attacking itself. There's other types of autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, type 1 diabetes. So we know about these type of diseases. But that's what we believe causes MS, the immune system attacking the brain. So tell us why people get MS and who gets MS. So then the question is, why should anybody have the immune system attack the brain? It's a complex combination of their genetics, although MS isn't a genetic disease, and the environment. So the environment is very important in terms of how it acts on MS. So the immune system normally fights off infections and other things, but sometimes when it's fighting off one of these infections, it gets misdirected and it attacks the brain. So why does someone get MS? They get MS because of the environment, their own genetic background, and the coming together of all these complex factors that lead to the disease. What do you mean by environment? So that's a good question. The environment means a lot of different things, okay? Smoking can help make you more susceptible to MS. Where you grew up, interestingly, the farther you are from the equator, the more you have a chance of getting MS, and that could relate to sunlight. And the vitamin D3, And the vitamin D3. So all aspects of the environment can affect MS. What levels do you like to see people's vitamin D3 at? So it depends on the laboratory. I think at our hospital it's between 60 and 80, but it depends on the the laboratory and what their normal values are. But we like to have all of our patients have normal levels of vitamin D. And you're saying that's about 60 D3? 
to 80, 60 depending to 80, on your... Depending on the laboratory, what the laboratory... So you tell everybody to take their vitamin Absolutely. D3? And we measure their blood levels. On a regular basis, yep, right? Yep, That is a whole podcast in itself, the importance of vitamin D3. And the vitamin D can affect the immune system. It can also affect the gut. Dr. Weiner, for vitamin D3, what's the difference between taking it in through sunlight and taking it in as a supplement? There's no real difference. Vitamin D3 is vitamin D3. Mm -hmm. If you're in the sun a lot, you're going to have normal levels. If you live in in Sweden or Canada, you won't have as much. So it's the same vitamin D3. And if you don't have enough of it in your bloodstream, you should take it. Yes, and also the idea of sunscreen blocking the vitamin D3, right? That's a whole other issue. That's a whole (laughs) other issue, and sunscreen may not be good. I actually have a scientist from Iran who's in my laboratory studying MS, and he wonders whether the women in Iran who's covering their faces don't get enough vitamin D and may be more susceptible to MS. Interesting. So you've taught us that there's two different kinds of MS. Can you talk about that? Sure. So the MS usually begins is what's called relapsing remitting. And this is where the blood cells from the bloodstream go into the brain and attack. And I would say that 75 or 80% of the MS is relapsing remitting. Usually people recover from their attacks, okay? And we can actually see that on an MRI scan, we can see the cells or signs of the cells going into the brain. So that's called relapsing remitting MS. And what happens when somebody has an attack? So common symptoms, they can go blind in an eye. They can have trouble speaking. They can have numbness or tingling in their extremities. They can have trouble walking. Interestingly, you usually recover from an attack. The body can recover itself. Now, after you have a number of attacks, you can enter the progressive phase. And that's when the brain itself becomes inflamed. And then you have trouble inside the brain, and that's called progressive MS. That's actually the type of MS that causes the most disability. And many, many people, if they're untreated, who have relapsing MS, will then go into progressive MS. But if you're treated, you could prevent going. If you're treated, you can prevent it. And when I started working in MS, there was no treatments. And I would sit with somebody and they'd say, you have multiple sclerosis, doctor, what's the treatment? I say, well, sorry, we don't have a treatment, but I'm sure one day we will. And I was right. I mean, I have hope. I'm an optimist. We'll have treatment for all these diseases. And now we have treatments for relapsing disease that stop the cells from going into the brain. So people don't have as many attacks. Can you talk to us about those therapies and what they're like? So we've had a number of therapies that have been developed over the years. The initial therapies were in the 90s, and these were injections. And the injections dampened the bad cells going into the brain. And how often did you get the injection? Did you have to wait for an attack to get it? When the injections were came out, you got it every other day or once a week or every day, etc. So that was the first generation of drugs. Then there were drugs that blocked the movement of cells going into the brain. For a cell to go into the brain, it has to leave the bloodstream and attach a blood vessel and go into the brain. And drugs came out that blocked that. And that was very effective. Then we got oral medicines that people could take orally. And each of these drugs was more effective than the previous ones. Side effects? They all have side effects. And now the latest advance has been in attacking different cells of the immune system 
when the immune system attacks the brain, there are many different pieces of the immune system that are required to attack the brain. So if you can knock down one of them or another of them, you have positive effects. So that simply stated, you have killer cells or disease-inducing cells, and you have regulatory cells. So we want to increase the regulatory cells and decrease the killer cells. Now, just as an aside, in cancer, we want to do the opposite. We want to increase the killer cells to kill the cancer. And cancers protect themselves by increasing regulatory cells. So it's kind of the opposite of MS. That's just amazing. So side effects, are they debilitating? One of the side effects we're worried about is a brain infection called progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. And that was seen with one of the drugs called Tysabri or natalizumab. And now we do blood tests to make sure people don't have that. So there are side effects if you mess with the immune system, but it's worse not to treat the immune system and have people become disabled. Why do some people do well with certain therapies and others don't do well with them? The people that don't do well with the therapies are often people with the progressive disease because the other disease-modifying therapy works on the peripheral immune system in the blood and not in the brain. Everybody is an individual, and all the medicines we have, one may work better in one than the other. It just happens to be. But with the medicines we have, I would say that if you have relapsing disease and you're having attacks, 90% of the time we can shut them off. You explained to us that it's not genetic. So are you predisposed to MS? Or I guess that's where all the factors come in, right? So when I said it's not genetic, that doesn't mean there aren't genes that are involved. And we've identified many genes that predispose to MS, and they all relate to the immune system. But it generally is not genetic like certain other diseases that if you have it, then there's a 50% chance that your family has it or whatever. Most of the MS is sporadic. So a question that I'm asked many times, what are the chances of my children? So the chances are increased a bit, but not a lot. Every once in a while... There'll be a family where a lot of people in the family have MS, but that's rare. That's what we mean, that it's not genetic in the classic sense, although genetics plays a role. Would it be different types of autoimmune diseases? So if someone could present with MS, somebody else could have Crohn's disease, for example, somebody else could have cancer, like all in the same family. Would that go under the same umbrella of autoimmune? So that's correct. So that in some instances... One member of the family might have one autoimmune disease and another member might have another autoimmune disease. Cancer is not connected to MS, but one autoimmune disease could be connected to another. So let's talk about the cure for MS. And is the cure even the right word? So I wrote a book called Curing MS about 15 years ago, and I discussed there are three cures. So I'll tell you something very interesting. Frequently, I'll have patients come in or their families, and the question that I get hey, doc, when will we have a cure? I'm asked that all the time. So what I did is I turned the question around and I said to the patient, well, what do you mean by cure? Because people think of different things. And when I did that, it became clear that there's three cures that people think about, okay? Number one is you come down with the disease, you have an attack, and a cure is to stop the disease in its tracks so you have no more attacks and you live a normal life. You may have to be on medicine, okay? So that's what I call halting the disease in its tracks. That's kind of a cure. I say to my patients, I can keep you healthy till you're 90, but then you're on your own. (laughs) (laughs) 
The second cure that people talk about, someone who, say, is disabled, is in a wheelchair or something, and they say, when will I be able to walk again? Okay? So that's rebuilding the nervous system. And that would relate to stem cells and other things that we're trying to do to rebuild the nervous system. That's huge, right? That's huge. That's like a whole big thing. That's a whole big thing, and we can come back to that. And the third cure is to prevent it from happening. Uh, we always say we cured polio, but we really didn't cure it. The kids who got the polio, we couldn't help them. We cured polio by preventing it. And one day we'll, in quotes, cure MS by preventing it, that we won't need it. Is that with a vaccine? Yes, that would be with a vaccine. And we could talk about that. That relates to the gut. One of the things that I talk to my patients about, I explain to them what I call the boxer analogy, like a boxer. And we, I, we know that because we box. <laughs> there you go. We do. You're we boxers. Do. We're okay. boxers. Okay. There you go. There you go. So I tell the patient, you're like a boxer in the ring, and you're fighting MS. And you can imagine if you get hit, you're going to go down, and there's many, many rounds. Every year of your life is a round. But what the medicines do is put up a shield so the boxer can't hit you. So if you put up a shield and you're in the ring and you never get hit, then you're fine, right? So one of my patients says, that's not really a cure. A cure is when I don't have to be in the ring with the boxer. And that's preventing the disease. That's preventing the disease. And we now have ways we're thinking about, since we know about the immune system, we now have ways where we are thinking about vaccines that you'd give to children and no one would ever come down with MS. And that's going to happen one day. How far in the future is that? Well, I think we can begin early vaccines in five or 10 years from now. But if you think of the experiment, it's a 20-year experiment. Because if you take a group of children who are 5 to 10, and they're going to get MS when they're 20 or 30, you got to give them the vaccine, and then you got to wait 20 years to show they don't get it. But one day that'll happen. That is amazing. Do you want to talk about that now? Should we talk about the gut and all the amazing science that's coming from that? The gut or we call it the microbiome of the gut, is one of the big revolutions in medicine now. It really relates to all kinds of diseases. So, so the visual is your gut is your stomach. The gut is your stomach, your upper intestine, your lower intestine, everything. Okay, so it's everything. So it's almost your digestive system. If you look at our gut, and now I'm talking about the intestines and all that area, there are 100 trillion bacteria in our gut, 100 trillion that's our probiotics, our antibiotics. That's our microbiome. So they're called microbiome. Microbiome. Okay. Yeah. And there's 100 trillion bacteria. And those bacteria evolved with us and serve very important functions. So when you're born, do you get your microbiome? That's a great question. So throughout life, the microbiome changes. And when you're born, you get your initial microbiome. Now, here's something very interesting. If you're born by normal vaginal delivery, you get the microbiome from your mother. If you're born by cesarean section, you don't get the microbiome. And they did studies. And children who are born by cesarean section, when they get older, have more allergy and other diseases because they didn't get the normal microbiome. And you change your microbiome? Your microbiome changes As you get older, as you go through puberty, when you get middle age or older, the microbiome isn't as strong as it was before. And although the microbiome can be separate for each individual, there are general things that are going on in the microbiome. Now, remember in evolution, nothing really happens in evolution that doesn't help us. 
And so we evolved with all these microbiome, all these bacteria. So they're good and they help us. There's an increase now in some of the autoimmune diseases like MS, type 1 diabetes. And some people think it relates to what we call the hygiene hypothesis, that we live in too clean of a world. The world is too clean. And that when we evolved, we were eating dirt and playing outside and everything in the microbiome was very important. And we're a little too clean now. So that I would predict in the future, I mean, I have a granddaughter and she had a cold and her mother says, oh, she, I said, that's good. Let her get her colds. Let her get exposed to all these things. But in the future, I wouldn't be surprised if we give specific things to boost the microbiome. But we all have the microbiome. I was just at a conference at Harvard Hospital yesterday, actually, where they're talking about the microbiome. It affects MS. It affects cancer. It affects obesity. It could affect autism. It can affect everything. Why can it affect everything? Because it's part of our body. It's a major part of our body. And the gut communicates with the brain. We know that in one way, if you get nervous, you feel it in your gut. I mean, you know, there's nerves that go back and forth. And there's things in the gut that communicate with the brain. So it's very important. So when we talk about it or have learned about it, it's like the gut's the second brain. That's correct. And it's literally, right? Because when we're in vitro, is the brain and the gut the same? So they're not exactly the same, but I would say it is the second brain because it's so complex and the brain interacts with the whole body and the gut interacts with the whole body. In fact, there's some data that I saw yesterday related to autism in children who get autism and that can relate to the gut and what goes on in the mother and how it affects the child. So the gut is very important. So we're going to start talking about heart healthy diet and brain healthy diet, but now it's going to be the micro... We're going to be talking about gut health. We're going to talk about gut health. And then everybody asks the question, what should I take? We don't know the answer yet. But as we learn about different microbes and organisms in the gut, we'll begin manipulating them. And we're already doing that and studying that in MS. Are you talking about probiotics? So one of the things are probiotics. We actually did a trial where we gave some of our MS patients probiotics to see whether we could affect the gut and to see whether we could affect the immune system, and we could. So probiotics are kind of off the shelf and everybody takes them. I don't know how good they really are, but ultimately we're gonna have scientific probiotics. And there's many companies trying to develop very specific probiotics or types of bugs that people should take. And the pharmaceutical industry is trying to come up with drugs based on that. Drugs, what's that mean when you say drugs? So it's gonna be manufactured, So you could say that a drug is something that affects the biology of the human being, and it could do it in different ways, okay? So there could be a drug that strengthens the heart. There could be a drug that lowers blood pressure. There could be a chemotherapy drug that kills cancer. The drugs related to the microbiome will affect the bacteria in the gut to make that healthier for the person. Say I've been diagnosed with MS. So I'd be focused on that. Is that sort of the direction we'd be going? Are you kind of saying live a healthy life? If you have MS, first of all, you should be on medicine for the MS. Second, you should live a healthy life. You should exercise. And we don't know exactly what to do with the microbiome. People say to me, well, what kind of diet should I do? If I have to recommend anything, I recommend a Mediterranean diet, which I think is healthy and good. And lower processed foods and lower sugar and all that, just to sort of eat a healthy lifestyle. And I think we talked about earlier, too, the role of stress in someone's life. Stress is not good. We know that. 
in people with MS or other diseases, especially the stress can make the disease worse. So we do our best to keep stress down. But one of the things I'm very careful about, I don't want someone to believe that if they take care of their stress and their MS gets worse, they did something wrong. I don't know anybody that doesn't have stress. We live in this modern world of stress. It's kind of crazy. I ask all my patients, do you feel stress? No matter who they are, they see us. Well, I have to take care of my kids. I have to change my job. I drive a lot to work, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we have to look for things in our life that relieve the stress, and that relates to other activities, to friends and family, to taking time out, you know, that type of thing. And it kind of all goes back to inflammation, right? So this idea of getting our body less inflamed, I would imagine is a positive thing for folks trying to prevent MS. That's correct. You want your body to be less inflamed, but some of the inflammation can be good because it fights off infection, et cetera. So, well, like you were saying with us protecting our children from any kinds, right? We want their bodies to be able to fight naturally. The immune system isn't just good or bad. In some instances, it's good. In some instances, it's bad. And we need to understand when. I think in general, we don't want a lot of inflammation going on. So I think that that's a good goal. Fevers, just as an aside, fevers aren't bad, right? Doesn't that just show that your body's fighting something? Or how do you look at a fever these days? So fever's not bad. The one thing that's the magnificent thing about our body is it's regulated. And it has to be within a certain regulation. So when you get an illness, you get a fever, it helps fight it. If you're very cold, you start shivering because you want more fever, temperature, whatever. So fever's not bad. It's a normal reaction. How do you feel about acupuncture as part of the treatment for MS? So many of my patients ask about acupuncture, and everybody's an individual. And one of the things that I always tell my patients is something like acupuncture or yoga or these other things are worth a try. And there's some people who take acupuncture and it helps them. So I'm in favor of acupuncture and trying it and seeing how it helps your symptoms, et cetera. So I think it's good. When you were talking about prevention, is there any prevention now before the vaccine? The only prevention that we can tell people relates to vitamin D. And if somebody says, what about my kids? What should I do? I say, just make sure their vitamin D levels are okay. And that's just like, do you just want to go on the mountaintop and scream that to everybody? Well, we do. We tell everybody and think it's very important. We would love to talk a little bit about you and your routine in life. You know, when we think of doctors, we think of doctors are very clinical, but you have this very creative side in the film industry. So tell us about you and your personal life. And then we want to talk about your film career. So I was uh, born and raised in Denver, Colorado. From the time I was born, my mother told me that I should be a doctor. There's actually a very tender story. Unfortunately, my mother's father perished in the Holocaust. And before he died, he wrote my mother a letter, if you have a son, make him a doctor. So when I was born, my mother said, you know, my father wanted you to be a doctor. On the day I was born, she said that to me. I didn't remember that, of course, but when I was five years old, I remembered it. And... When I was eight or nine or 10, I always felt when I walked by a hospital, I belonged there. So that's kind of a destiny. So I kind of feel we all have our own destinies. And I think my destiny was in medicine for whatever reasons, you know, I felt that. Now, another area that I had a lot of interest in was really movies. And when I was in medical school, I made music videos of Beatles songs. I was kind of ahead of my time. I got my classmates and we took them out of the library and I was making music videos of Beatles songs. What's your favorite Beatles song? Oh, my God. 
I love the Beatles. I like Lady Madonna, and I like A Day in the Life, I think, is a very good song. But there's so many good Beatles songs anyway. So anyway, in medical school, I was interested in music videos, but I was really interested in medicine more. As time went on, I had this idea of making movies. I was also a philosophy major in college, and I was interested in life's big questions. So I made a documentary called What is Life? The Movie. And I went around the world and interviewed people and asked them the big questions. Why is there evil? Is there a God? Are things predetermined? All the big questions that actually in science you can't really answer. It's something as individuals we need to deal with. And that actually won some Los Angeles Film Awards, so I was very happy about that. And then I had got an idea for another movie that turned out to be a Hollywood movie called Abe and Phil's Last Poker Game. And that starred Martin Lando and Paul Sorvino. And it premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. What some of my genes, if you talk about genes, went to the creative side because my son, Ron Weiner, he's an Emmy Award-winning comedy writer for 30 Rock, and now he writes for Silicon Valley. So he said, Dad, make another movie, you know, that type of thing. So I made this other movie, and it came out very well. It's a touching movie, and it deals with getting old. It deals with friendship. It deals with searching for roots. It was very exciting. When do you do this? So, like, is it at night that you're sort of thinking about what you would do? Because during the day, I would imagine you're pretty busy with your patients and labs and all of that. So when does this happen? Uh, It happens early in the morning. I get up, I'll have my cup of coffee, and then I'll think about things. I'll write things about the scripts or whatever. So I often do it early in the morning. Do you ever see a patient and go, oh, they would make a great Yes, I do. There's one character character in one of my movies. I saw this patient, a woman that I was very struck by the way she looked and the way she talked and her eyes and how she viewed things. I says, oh, I got a character for my movie. Does she know? No. There's actually two films I'm working on, one that relates to medicine. It's called Fire in the Brain. That's what it's called. And it's going to be a television documentary series that deals with all these diseases, MS, Alzheimer's. ALS, the diseases we're studying at the Ann Romney Center. So that's going to be a documentary film series about the brain. The other real movie, in quotes, I mean, that type of thing, is like a Fellini, Woody Allen movie called Subways of the Mind. And that deals with a doctor who's going through an existential life crisis in New York and what's life about it, whatever. And he finds himself going down into the New York subways, and that's his subconscious. And there's a conductor there that talks to him. So there's the mother station and the grass is always greener station. So he's going back and forth trying to understand what life is about, which is kind of a lot of art is what is life about and how do I address it, et cetera. So those are my next two movie projects. If you had to make MS a character, how would you characterize MS? What kind of personality does it have? Have you ever thought like that? Yeah, I think the MS character has different sides to it, and it it hides part of its evilness that you don't see, and then it kind of pops up, and you never know when you're going to get attacked, so it's always kind of there out to get you. So it's sort of like if you're worried about someone trying to catch you or someone trying to do something to you. So I view MS as a evil force that can be quiet but is ready to do something to you and never leaves. So, Doctor, we often ask people if there was one book you would recommend everyone read, what would that be? Is this book called Homo Sapiens by Yuval Harari. He's an Israeli, and he talks about 
life on earth and how it developed and all the different ways in which we came to where we are. It's a very good book. It's not political at all. It's very basic in terms of what life is about. You're such a big thinker. Yeah, when I was six years old, I used to write, what is life about? You know wow. what I mean? Yeah. And now you get to ask those questions of everybody. Well, I think I do. I think we all do. You know what I mean? I think that there's a common humanity that we all have and that we all have to deal with it. We have to deal with bad things that happen to us. How do we deal with it? We're very connected to our families and how do we look after our families? We're worried about the earth and I think we need to leave the world better than when we came. I think that's kind of everybody's mission in life. Your patients are lucky to have a doctor that thinks not just about medicine, but also thinks about everything else. Who are your mentors? My mentors have been doctors that I trained with, and from each of them I took different things. I know there's one who's a very critical thinker, another one that was just a warm individual that their patients loved to see them, you know, so I reacted to that. I think that the arts are somewhat of a mentor. In other words, stories about adversity, people who've risen up and taken on challenges, etc. I kind of get inspiration from that. That's remarkable to have a doctor that thinks like this. People are probably happy that they have you through their disease stages. So it is kind of interesting because I will spend time talking to patients independent of their MS. We talk about all that and we talk about life and we talk about what it means and what you should do and that they shouldn't feel guilty. But it's not their fault. Not their fault. And do you find that your patients can sometimes view this as a healing journey? There's some patients who've said to me, interestingly, that my life is better now that I got MS because it puts my life in perspective, gives me a focus. Me as a doctor, what's very exciting is that I can help them. So I saw a young woman, a medical student who came down with MS. Of course, she's scared. I mean, she reads everything. She knows everything. So I'm able to say to her, don't worry. We have medicines that you can take. You can get married. You can have your kids. You can be a doctor. And for a physician to be able to say that to a patient is very, very gratifying. There's other diseases we don't have that. If, God forbid, you had Alzheimer's or Lou Gehrig's disease, they say, well, what are the treatments? And you say, well, we don't really have treatments, but I know one day we will, which we will, but it doesn't help them at that moment. How does the immune system in cancer relate to the immune system in MS? So that's a great question. And actually, they're opposite. You know, cancer, I don't have to say it's tough. Cancer is a tough disease. The immune system actually is trying to kill the cancer cells in our body and trying to fight against the cancer cells. And the cancer cells are very clever. They block the immune system. They're like an army, and they block your army. And somebody just won the Nobel Prize by discovering that there are drugs that can unleash the immune system and release it from its breaks or release it from its blocks so it can kill the cancer, okay? And those are called checkpoint inhibitors. So the drugs release the immune system so the immune system can attack the cancers. Actually, Jimmy Carter had this metastatic cancer that was treated with one of these drugs that really helped them. Now then, you would ask before a question, well, what happens if you release the immune system and fight its cancer? Can it cause other problems? And the answer is in some people, yes. And in some people, you get autoimmune disease. You get a disease similar to MS. Now, it doesn't happen in a lot of people, but it happens in some people. I'll tell you something interesting. I spent my whole life working on autoimmunity and multiple sclerosis, and we're trying to dampen the immune system. 
and we discovered something that dampens the immune system when we figured out how to release it. It came from our work on MS, and now this has turned into a cancer drug. So there's an example of working on MS, finding something that dampens the immune system, releasing it, and it could help cancer. So it's a very important concept and shows how important the immune system is. I'll say one other thing, which is kind of wild, that the microbiome or the gut also relates to response to cancer. So that some people who have certain bugs in their gut respond better to cancer treatments. So it all comes together, the immune system, the gut, cancer, MS, it's all integrated. So it's really just reinforcing this idea of bioindividuality, that every body is different. Everybody is different, and everybody has its own way of controlling and interacting. When that goes astray, you can get disease. As a doctor, as a person that's really analyzed life and spent a ton of time, obviously, creating incredible movies, what's your viewpoint on death? It's the big question that we don't have the answer to. I believe there's something out there. I don't believe it just all ends. I can't say I know exactly what it is, but I have this feeling that there's something there. I mean, everybody has to deal with it and think about it. Some people believe there is a life after death. I hope there is. Some people don't believe it, and I can understand that. But it's something that everybody has to deal with. When you think about death, you have to then put more energy into living your life. Your point about putting more energy into the way you want to live is so important. I mean, if we all look at death that way, we could maybe change the way we live our lives now. Is that what you're suggesting? I think that we have to realize that our time as we know it is limited. And so we need to take advantage of it. We need to feel blessed with what we have. I mean, in terms of all the wonderful things in life, should give us energy to live our lives better. As a doctor of MS, 10 years from now, you think the world will be different in the MS world? First of all, we'll do more with the gut. There's no question about that. We'll have better treatments for the progressive types of MS. We'll have more personalized medicine where we can figure out, I mean, you had asked the question about why some people respond to medicines versus others. So I think that we'll know what drugs should be given to what person. And that's what I see in 10 years from now. So doctor, what's your favorite quote? So actually, I do have a favorite quote, and it's from a very famous person, Winston Churchill. And as I understand, he was asked to give a commencement speech, and he got up, and his commencement speech was one sentence. Never, ever, ever quit. I actually have that on my desk, on a little thing that says never quit, and I think that's very important. If I were your patient, I would like to see that on your desk. It is. It is on my desk. What would your 20-year-old self tell you now? My 20-year-old self would say, go for your dreams. Don't be afraid to work, aim high, enjoy life, have a family. And write movies. And write movies, yeah. <laughs> Do you see that getting to be a bigger role in your life now? I don't think so. I mean, everyone says, how can you do all these things? But the interesting thing is, I mean, I raised my family. I have two sons. I have five grandchildren. So a lot of time went into that. So I have a little more extra time, if you will. So you have the one son that's the director. Right. And then the other son, the other you should son, mention him too. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> they both went to Harvard. One went to Hollywood. One went to Wharton. And he runs a business called Revel Talent out of Denver, where he has been very successful in marketing, recruiting, and helping people. They both did well. I'm, I feel blessed. 
Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>